The Bible says things as strong as, it is easier for you to alter God's covenant with the heavenly bodies, alter God's covenant to give us seasons, God's covenant with day and night, than it is to undo His covenant with David, that we would be saved by David's son. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, 17, let's quickly move past independence that we gather from I am that I am and the things that Elihu, Job, and his three friends knew about the Lord that we ought to know. 1 Timothy 1, 17, I wonder the King eternal, immortal, invisible. God is a spirit, and so he doesn't have corporal existence. This can be called his invisibility, like it is right here. It can be called his immateriality, because he does not have material. It can be called his incorporeality, which means he doesn't have a corporal existence, like when we say corporal punishment. Because God is a spirit, and the Bible wants us to know that about him. And there are things from that that we should appreciate. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it tells us why we can't see him. It says that he dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. Now Solomon said he dwelt in the thick darkness, but both of them are true. He dwells beyond our ability to see him. God hasn't been seen by a man. He never will be seen by a man. You'll not see God in heaven. You will see his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that. No man can see him and live. Even when we're glorified, we will not be able to see Him and live. Jesus Christ, though glorified and though God's beloved Son, is still subordinate to our great God. We see God by faith. The Bible says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 that he saw Him. I want the exact words there. In uh, As seeing Him who is invisible. Moses' faith was so strong, it was as if he could see God because his faith saw him. We see God in his creation because the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and we see and we hear the message that is preached and we see him in Jesus Christ. It's very important to appreciate God's hatred of all divine images or likenesses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, while you're turning there, the first commandment was to Israel, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Then thou shalt not make unto thee any image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or in the earth, or in the sea beneath, nor bow down to them, nor worship them. That's Exodus 23, 4 and 5. You're turning to Deuteronomy 4. The God of the Bible, Jehovah, I am that I am, is an invisible spirit. He is known as being invisible. That's why it's mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.17. And that's why it's mentioned in other places that no man can see him and live. But I want you to think about that fact in the light of the idolatry that has gone on for 6,000 years as men have painted pictures and carved totem poles and graven images that supposedly represent God. Our God has chosen to reveal Himself differently, and I'm very quickly running past and over the text I could have given you about His invisibility to a practical point that we can get from that. And I want to share with you Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
beginning at verse 15. It's a long passage, and so I will quit as soon as I am able to believe that you understand what is said here. Deuteronomy 4.15 Take ye therefore good heed. This is important for us to pay attention to. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. This is Mount Sinai when God came down to Israel. When they had to prepare themselves for three days before they even met God. He's wanting to remind them, you didn't see anything. You didn't see anything. Not the similitude of anything. Take heed to yourself that you remember that fact, verse 16, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image. The similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, gods or goddesses, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth, no mermaids. And lest thou lift up thine eyes into heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. And it just goes on like that. See, those the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, are just little lights that God put out there. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also for little twinkling lights in the sky. Period. That's what they're there for. You know, they're to help sailors out at sea, to have constellations to direct their ships by. And they're for you to see little twinkling lights out there and figure out how far they are away. And God is so glorious that they're all suns like the one we have. But you didn't see anything because God has chosen to reveal himself with words. Words. Charismatics want a vision. They want to see God. I saw Jesus. I saw. No, you didn't. And so what? Are two answers. You didn't see Jesus because the last to see him was Paul. And it wouldn't matter if you did see him because we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's the word of God. And this is a, this is a huge point when you think about God being invisible. And there's so many scriptures. So then faith cometh by seeing and seeing by a vision of God. No. Does Romans 10, 17 say, So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When Moses said, Show me thy glory, what did he see? I mean, what did he see? Nothing. He heard it. That's, that's true. He heard God declaring his attributes. Merciful and long-suffering, gracious, forgiving sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. Those are character traits and attributes of God, but they came in these two holes, not these two holes. Because, guess what? The Lord is operating at a higher level, and He has chosen us over the stupidity of man. Man is so stupid, and has always been so stupid, He has always wanted a picture book rather than a book with words. They would rather watch TV than read. All men have wanted to see something rather than read something because to read means you have to think. And you create your... I'm serious about this. 
I love the Lord our God and the way he's done it. When Moses said, show me thy glory, Moses didn't see anything. He heard it through his ears. When Job said, now mine eye seeth thee, did Job say that in Job 42? Did he see anything? No. Now mine eye seeth thee, for I have heard thee with the hearing of my ear. Do you know what all that is telling us? Do you want to know about God? Do you want to have a vision of God? Do you want to see God? Right here. Read about Him. Read about Him. I can read about His long-suffering. I can read about His graciousness, His forgiveness of sin, His loving kindness, His tender mercies. The pages are full of it. And so that is how we learn God. He's invisible. But yet they've made totem poles and they've made statutes, whether it's whether it's the fish god Dagon with the Pope's hat on top of him and the trunk of a fish, or any god that you can go and see, they have made all kinds of images and likenesses of things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth, creeping things. Do you remember the snake house in Penang? Do I have anyone here that remembers the snake house in Penang? And our God has written down what He's like. So we see him that way because he's invisible. And he wanted Israel to know in Deuteronomy 4.15, when I came and met with you, you didn't see anything. What you got were a whole bunch of words. And it goes on and describes that. And those words were wonderful and glorious. Roman Catholics hate God so much, they will make any image. And what do they do with that image? It's a word that starts with G. Do you know the word? Genuflect. What is genuflection? What is it to genuflect? It is to bow and show religious worship or reverence toward an object. And they'll say, well, we don't worship them. Then what are you genuflecting in front of them for? So how do they, what do they do with the Ten Commandments of God? They just blow out number two. Right. Number two says, you'll not make any images or likenesses of anything, nor bow down and worship them. So they just blow it out. Well, then, how do they get Ten Commandments? They take the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, and split it into two halves. Just, you know, I can't say anything anymore that you just can't go home and punch into a Google search box. Just, well, don't you do it here in church. I know that you could do it right now if you wanted to on your super slick iPads with 4G connection or 3G. But, you know, you can just punch in Ten Commandments Catholics. Or you can go to our website and you can see it. They have no fear of God. They will do anything to promote their religion that caters to the depravity and stupidity of man that wants something visual. Why does a Catholic feel that he's in the presence of God in a Catholic church? Because it's so fancy. Who could think you were in the presence of God here? Unless you were given faith and you understood God's words, then you start hearing things on your ears and you realize this is where God's worshipped. This is how God wants to be worshipped. He knew that if he gave man the, uh, the opportunity to see anything, they would have created some statue, and instead of worshipping him, they'd be worshipping it. We want to worship what the Bible says about God. We don't want to worship the Bible as it is God. It isn't God. It's just a revelation about God. But he's invisible, and it says a great deal about how we can know him. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual is comparing the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Because we learn God by words. Since God is invisible, 
No man can tell you even a hint of what he might look like. So don't even think about it. You know, sometimes when I'm in prayer, I have part of my mind saying, Lord, I like praying with a mental image. But I don't know of anything that you look like. So I'm casting myself by faith on the invisible God. This is not infrequent with me. See, I've always put him on a throne. And I'm, I'm holding his ankles. And he doesn't have ankles. But the Lord doesn't want us to have an image in our head. He, we, we want to believe the word of God. Right. And what are the backsides of God like? They're a loud voice proclaiming the Lord. The Lord, full of grace and mercy, long-suffering and forgiveness. As it describes in Exodus 34, when God saw... When Moses saw God's glory, no one can tell you even a hint of what he might look like. That depraved sodomite that painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, that isn't God. I won't say any more on that subject. Since God is invisible, not even the least concept of his nature is by appearance. It's all by words. So we don't try to look at something, and because it's mean looking, we think of it as powerful or terrible or dreadful. Because you can get distorted then and have this whole spectrum of how terrible is that mean-looking God. There's nothing like that. It's just words. And so we have the balance and the counterpoints that God's given us in Scripture to know that He is the most incredible being worthy of us totally trusting Him. And He's invisible. And so it didn't, it didn't hold up Solomon from praying when he said, the Lord said that He would dwell in the thick darkness. He just got down on his knees and lifted up his palms to heaven and prayed one of the best prayers in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 8, in the dedication of that temple. Since God's invisible, my brothers and sisters, we reject anything close to idolatrous images or likenesses. We don't wear crucifixes. We don't have crosses. We don't have steeples. We don't have steeples with a cross at the top. We don't have paintings behind a baptistry. We don't have artwork. We don't make any likenesses or images of God to assist us in worshiping Him. We don't have the 12 stations of the cross. We don't have any of that stuff. Because the Bible's so plain to us that God's revealed Himself by words. You cannot see Him. But by His immensity, which is another word for His omnipresence, which means omni equals all, plus presence equals he's there with you. He's always there, all everywhere. His presence is everywhere. Though he's invisible, we know that he is immense, filling heaven and earth. So we know he's close to us at all times, even though you can't see him. We can't see the Lord Jesus Christ right now, but according to the promise of his word, he's walking among his golden candlesticks this day. The Lord God is with us, And he's among us as a congregation, and he's in us as individuals. And we believe it by faith in the word of God, because that is what he has declared about himself. And that is far more important and far more to be trusted than if we actually did see him or did see Jesus with Moses and Elijah and all of them conversing, which Peter did and told us the scriptures are better. That more sure word of prophecy, I hope you love it. Now, brethren, the invisible God has a perfect image. Now, the Bible says, don't make any images or likenesses of anything to worship me. And yet, that God has a perfect image. Do you know what that image is? He has a likeness. Do you know? Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
He is the express image of God and the brightness of His glory. You say, Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. Read about His character. That's the character of God. And when you see Him in heaven, it's going to show the character of God. His love, His kindness, His forgiveness, His mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's that a reflection of? The mercy of God every day. He sends His sunshine, His rain, and the evil and the good. That's His invisibility. Much more could be said, but the Bible says He's invisible. What can we gather from that? I just gave you some things to think about. And I hope it causes you to love what the Bible says about God more than any picture you have in your mind. Because whatever you have in your mind is a figment of your imagination or someone else's. It didn't come from the Bible. Intelligence is another attribute of God or His omniscience. When I use the word intelligence, obviously I'm picking words that start with I, like infinity, intelligence, immortal, invisible, intelligent, or he's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. Science equals knowledge, omni equals all. First Timothy 1.17 taught us that as well, that he was the only wise God. He's without under, he's, there's no limit to his understanding. Look at Psalm 145 in verse 3. Psalm 145 and verse 3. The intelligence, the omniscience of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. We can never search out to know everything there is about God. Man cannot search God out, but God can easily search man out. Look at Psalm 139 and verse 1. Psalm 139, 1. That first verse from 145.3, we can't search him out. Psalm 139.1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. That's because he knows everything. He's omniscient. And we could go to so many verses. Look at Job 37 and verse 16. He doesn't need to increase in understanding because he's already perfect. Job 37.16, dost thou know the balancings of the clouds? The wondrous works of Him which is perfect in knowledge. Now, if you're perfect in knowledge, you're omniscient. You have all knowledge, like the Bible says here in this verse. His understanding, the Bible tells us, is infinite. And we could multiply our testimony on these points of God's infinite understanding and His perfect wisdom over and over. His knowledge of everything about us is too wonderful and too high David said in Psalm 139, and I, I do desire you to return to that chapter. Psalm 139. He's perfect in knowledge. He's infinite in understanding. He's intelligent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all things. All the time he knows everything about all details of his universe. It's incredible to think of all the dimensions of his knowledge. It's not bound by anything. There's no one that can keep something from God. There's no one that can go far enough away from God. He fills heaven and earth, and He knows it all, right down to words that are not even spoken yet. Psalm 139, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me, starting at verse 1, Thou knowest my down-sitting. So when you're sitting down and thinking that you're all alone, you're not. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Oh, come on. 
He knows everything you're going through and more than you know about what you're going through. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. He's not afar off, but if he were afar off, if you think you're afar off, he still knows your thoughts. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. You are all around me. A compass is something that makes a circle. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. Now listen, I want to make this practical and exciting for every one of you. Every woman, when you have tackled a room full of laundry, when you have tackled a kitchen sink full of dishes, when you have done something and your husband's off at work, and you are thinking, no one knows how hard I work for this family. No one knows. He knows. And he's really the only one that matters. He can reward you in ways your husband sure can't. Well, it'd be nice to get a thank you once in a while. Well, how about eternal life? I love this. Listen, I, I can be foolishly melancholy at times and be thinking about how discouraged I am and how lonely it is. And then you read a few verses like this and you're ashamed of yourself and we should be. And that's why we go to church to come into the sanctuary and be reminded of how we ought to be thinking. Verse 4, There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Now, if a word's in your tongue, it hasn't got out yet, but he knows it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. How far is he away from knowing everything going on in your life when his hand is on you, and he's behind you, and he's in front of you? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That's why it's omniscience. That's why God has intelligence and we don't. Such knowledge, God's knowledge, this kind of knowledge, is too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. It's incredible what God knows. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? How far can you get away from God? You can't. Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. So when you're on a plane, he is there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I'm in a coffin, put six feet down, and they put a concrete lid over me, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you take an international flight to New Zealand. Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Is this comforting? This is not dry theology. This is practical theology of God's omniscience and intelligence to know everything about you and His omnipresence, though we're going to deal with that later, to be with you at all times. Verse 11, if I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. How do you like that for knowledge? As soon as I turn the lights out on you, you don't know what's going on in the room. You know, you used to play hide-and-go-seek in the house, and you understood that. The lights go out, people can move, and you don't know where they're going. But you turn the lights out in the Lord, and it doesn't make a bit of difference at all, because He is omniscient. He sees just as clearly if it's dark or light, they're the same to Him. Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Now, how big were you, and how smart were you, and what was going on in your mother's womb? Were you helping take care of business down there? 
when you were in your mother's womb, but the Lord was. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. That's a mother's womb. And curiously, that skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Wow. Thank you, Lord. That is his intelligence and omniscience of knowing everything that is going on about you from you being fashioned from the smallest of cells coming together and multiplying and growing in your mother's womb. He's with you no matter where you go. He knows the the thoughts of your heart, the words in your tongue. Darkness and light are the same to him. Lord, help us to trust in thee. You're worthy of all our trust in every situation. His omniscience knows your every problem and your every enemy. Your prayers don't inform God. He already knows your needs before you ask. It should convict you about secret sins that He knows everything because the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. But it should comfort you about your good works as well because it says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those that fear Him. Does it say that? Does the Bible say in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good? Now I'm going to come after some of you on Wednesday evening. I'm going to come after the whole church and you'll get to hide in the audience. But see, some of you read a verse like Proverbs 15.3 and all you can see in it is this, the eyes of the Lord behold the evil. Now, if my slides start out on Wednesday evening with a glass of water half full, hopefully you'll understand where I'm headed because some of you have a problem in the way you read Scripture. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. If you're going to recognize that God sees your evil, make sure you also recognize that God sees your good. If you say to me, I don't have any good, you are a liar. And you're a heretic, and if you will be converted from that or you won't be a member of this church. You are nothing like David if that's the way you talk. Now, I know some of you were brought up in religious systems that wouldn't allow you to think scripturally, that wanted to tell you that a really spiritual person just goes about grieving about their sins all the time, but you can't find such a person in the Bible. See, David knew he was righteous. David knew that God blessed him because he was righteous. And that righteousness was not the righteousness of Christ on him. That righteousness was his obedience to God's commandments. And so when we we read a verse like that, and we're thinking about God's omniscience, that he knows everything, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding, he sees everything, the evil and the good, make sure 
that to the degree you are convicted by the fact that he sees your secret sins, you are comforted by the fact that he sees your love of him and your devotion and service to him. Because both are true. And that's why we're in, we want to be in the middle of the road with the truth as it is in Jesus. You know, there's a, there's a religious denomination of Baptists that some of you came from that will not allow a saint to be, to be assured and be, be persuaded and to know that they're going to heaven when they die. Because they think it's humility to say, I have a hope. Well, Paul sure didn't have a hope. Paul absolutely knew without ever a shadow of a doubt that he was going to heaven. That is wrong. You're casting an aspersion upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said it is finished. Why do you have a hope? You should be fully persuaded. Amen. So, it's so wonderful. Look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Should the fact that God sees our sins convict us? Absolutely. Do you know what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, when Solomon closed out that philosophical work of his? The last verse is not. This, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. That's the, that's the beginning of the end. Here's the end. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And that should cause us conviction that even in private, even in our thoughts, even in our words, even at home, even when we think no one is watching, we're responsible for our conduct before God, and God sees it all, and God will, when we exceed His limits, chasten us for it. However, at the same time, we want to know that God sees everything we do in secret that is good. Because the Bible says that as well, even in that verse that I just gave to you. Psalm 18. Some of you don't believe this about David, and some of you have made it your purpose in life not to be like David, because all you want to do is tell me about how wicked you are, and you have no goodness of your own. Then you're not like David. You have a problem, and it's a spiritual problem. You misunderstand what real humility is. It is not going about grieving about your sins. It is thanking God for sending Jesus Christ, who paid for your sins in full, once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Past, present, and future. He delights in you. Right. If you're like David, look at Psalm 18. Verse 19. He brought, this is David's psalm when he had defeated all his enemies. It's in the Bible twice. It's 2 Samuel 22 and it's right here in Psalm 18. It's a glorious psalm. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. God delighted in David. Yes, the adulterer, the murderer, the number of Israel that cost 70,000 men their lives, the terrible father that didn't take care of his children, the man that moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way. And my mind is slipping me right now, but there's more. The Lord has told us that the laundry list of David's sins. But in spite of those, God delighted in him because where was there a man that loved the worship of God more than David? Did David have to confess his sins once in a while? Of course. Did God forgive him? Yes. Did David believe that God forgave him and let him start over with a clean slate? Absolutely. 
because he delighted in me. Verse 20, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. Do you need an explanation of those words? The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. That was David's overall character. And that was David's complete character when you blotted out his sins that he confessed and God forgave. I want you to bask in the knowledge of God, not run and hide in the trees of the garden from God. That's an unregenerate man. That's Adam. He is forgiving. I have sinned against the Lord, I told you last Lord's Day, from Nathan's message to David. And the David said, and the Lord said through Nathan the prophet, the Lord hath forgiven thee. Right. You say, but David suffered for it. The sword wouldn't depart from his house. So what? Give me the sword for the rest of my life. As long as I know that God is with me and has made a covenant with me, it's all my salvation, although my house be not so with God. Ordered in all things ensure. That was, a, that was a consequential reminder in David's family that God had forgiven him, that he had sinned grievously, but God had had mercy upon him. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. If you deny this verse, then you deny that God sees the good, and all you know about God is he sees the evil, and so you have distorted God. You have distorted the I am that I am. The I am wants you to know this about him. What you, what you end up doing is destroying the Bible. Because the Bible says so much about the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous are people that do righteousness. Who are the just in the book of Proverbs? The just shall be blessed. Who is this just man? Is that legal justice? No. That is his obedience to God. Right. He's going to be blessed. Because the book of Proverbs is not about your legal salvation or your final salvation or your glorification or your regeneration. It's about God's practical blessings upon you in family, in relationships, in storehouse, in health, because you're practically righteous. Because God sees it. Remember, I'm under the point of intelligence. God's omniscient. He sees it. Our religion is such that none of us do anything that has a big splash with God. We don't bring big offerings. We, we, we don't bring our children with christening gowns on them. We don't have fancy church buildings where we can say, I'm a charter member of the first church in town of some name. We don't have any of that. We're a bunch of simple saints, and we sit in a simple place like this, and we have the simplest of presentations of the Bible given to us from the Word of God, and we learn about Him that in the privacy of our homes, in the delight of our hearts, lying in bed at night where no one can see us or hear us, nor even see that we're in a prayer posture, we can speak to Him, and He sees us, He hears us, He comes to us, and He will bless us for seeking His face. And if you are going to fear the part of that sentence in Proverbs 15.3 that He sees the evil, make sure that you counterbalance that. He sees the good. I'm not talking about earning our way to heaven by having more good outweigh our evil. I'm telling you about a God that sees both, covers the one by the blood of Christ, sanctifies the other by the work of the Holy Spirit, and rewards you for it. This is a glorious God. Do you know why I ever obey Him? Because He put it in me to obey Him. Do you remember Job 36, 
where he says he teaches man instruction and commands him and leads him to do what is right? In Job 33, when it says God oftentimes appears to men while they sleep, it's to keep him back from pride. But God sees all that. I'm going to keep going right here. I'm, verse 21, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Were there times when David didn't keep them? Of course. But what would David say about himself? If you want to be like David, you have to learn how to think this way right. in its proper place. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Have you ever wickedly departed from your God? Yes. But what did you do about it as soon as you recognized that you did it? You confessed it and he is faithful and just to forgive it. And when he is faithful and just to forgive it, how much should you be thinking about it? If you think about it, then what are you saying about his forgiveness? He must be thinking about it. And you're starting to deny what Jesus Christ did for us. He knew before he ever created you that you were going to live a miserable life of falling into sin, confessing it, and coming back out of it. Falling into sin, confessing it, and coming back out of it. But he sent Jesus Christ to pay for all that. Amen. But that's not what's under consideration here. I'm just telling you how to understand these words. When David said, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, on that basis of my goodness, hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. And there's my point. I want you to know the comforting aspect that God sees your imperfect, and yet your love for him, your service to him, your delight in his word. I'm not making this up. This is the word of God. When you talk to me and say things that are contrary to this, you scare me about your knowledge of God. You've been mistaught. This is how David spoke. Some of you I know that just to read those words, he's arrogant, he's self-righteous, he's pompous, he's proud, he's like the Pharisees. No, no, no. No and no to those five points. This is David, the man after God's own heart. And he sinned, and the Bible gives us his skeletons. But God forgave him. And he knew, let me see if I can get this across. Was there a, is there a difference to you between King Saul and King David? Is it a little itty-bitty difference? Is it a great big difference? Now, I'm not talking about the righteousness of Christ. King Saul could be in heaven easily. If Samson and Gideon are there, why couldn't King Saul be there? Okay, so King Saul's in heaven and David's in heaven. They both got there 100%, by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. However, in their lives, was one more righteous than the other? Oh, no comparison. One was impulsive, profane, and carnally minded. One was spiritually minded, and though he sinned, he would confess his sins and then do everything in his power to serve God again with all his might, no matter what the cost. And that was David. We'll return to this. Next Lord's Day, there's just too much here. 
about his omniscience is so comforting and so Amen. wonderful. It should comfort you in your pain. Do you know where he, do you know that he has all your tears in his bottle? Amen. Do you know that it says that in the Bible, Psalm 56 and verse 8? Do you know that he has a book that has all your wanderings written in it? Whenever you've been wandering and you didn't know where to go and you didn't know what to do, do you know that he's got those all written down? It's the same verse. If you want a verse, it's Psalm 56 and verse 8. I'm not talking about the book of remembrance in Malachi chapter 3 uh, when God writes your name down when you speak of him to others, but that book should be remembered. Right now, I just want to leave you with the book that you've never cried and God didn't see it. When I look in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13 and find the Lord of heaven rebuking the men of Judah for crying wives, I realize, oh boy, I do not want to go to the altar of God. I don't want to come in here in your pulpit and preach. If I'm mistreating her over there so that she's crying, even if it's inside, God sees it all. Where are you going to go this afternoon that the Lord's not going to be with you? When in your life wasn't he with you? Praise his glorious name. He knows everything about us. And it should comfort us a great deal. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. As we come to the Lord's table, I want to remind you that out there before the world and sent to your inboxes was Proverbs 11.15 for this weekend. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. And he that hateth suretyship is sure. Suretyship is you guaranteeing the performance or the payment by another person. In our society, we would call it co-signing a loan. That's becoming a surety. The bank is not sure of this borrower, so you put your signature on the line, which makes them sure, so you become a surety for that borrower. And when you look at the verse, he that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it yet, you should think to yourself, what in the world? Why would I co-sign for a stranger? But you got to remember who Solomon was writing to. His son, the royal prince. Was Solomon moderately successful financially? Or excessively wealthy? And so the, the royal son, the prince, would have had a temptation with strangers coming to him and saying, I want to start a business, but I can't get a loan. Will you sign for me? And if a royal prince grew up with a gentle man like Solomon and you wanted to be a loving friend, what would you do? Sign down your Rehoboam and the bank's going to pay. And so Solomon has to give this warning over and over to his son not to let his position cause him to become a surety for strangers. And the word of warning to Rehoboam was, He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, because you don't know their character nor their ability to pay, and you are going to get yourself in trouble. And he that hateth suretyship is sure. I had a debt, and you had a debt, and it was for our lives. It was not for our physical life only. It was for our spiritual life, and it was for our eternal life. We had been judged guilty of crimes sufficient for physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And we were strangers from God. Yea, the truth be told, we were his enemies. 
But the God that said that being a surety for a stranger, you're going to smart for it, that God sent his son, his Rehoboam, though it was Jesus of Nazareth, to be our surety. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Hebrews 7.22 And do you know what made him our surety? An oath out of heaven. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.21 King of Salem and King of Righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ became surety for us, though we were his enemies. Now the reason Solomon would tell Rehoboam, don't ever co-sign a loan for a stranger, is because an accumulated amount of contingent liabilities could eventually wipe Rehoboam out. But I want to tell you something about the God of heaven. In his design and plan of salvation, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ And there is no sin too great. There is no sinner with too many sins that Jesus Christ couldn't fully pay for. And so he is able to operate above and against this order in the book of Proverbs because his son, Jesus Christ, was able to take all our iniquities and pay for them fully and be accepted in the sight of the great lawgiver or banker, whatever term you need to think about, the debt that we owed, and it's paid in full. It is finished. Accepted by God. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He shall see his seed. The Lord Jesus Christ saw his seed, me, you, and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Jesus is a surety that brought our eternal life into force by standing in our place, though we were enemies, and paying it in full right off the bat. It wasn't a contingent plan that if we couldn't pay, he'd pay. The Lord knew we couldn't pay, and so he sent Jesus to pay on our behalf. And the Bible calls Jesus our surety in Hebrews 7.22. It's a simple thought. I've preached it to you before. Much more could be said. It's glorious, though. How sure are you of your salvation? I'm as sure as Jesus Christ. How sure is that? Jehovah is my Savior. How sure is that? I am that I am. The self-existent, self-subsistent, self-determining God When he makes a promise and when he makes a declaration, it doesn't change in the past, present, future. It is based on his own will and power of existence, and it will absolutely come to pass. Everything you know and think that is sure is going to be burned up and renovated by the great God of heaven. There is nothing that you can put your trust in like him and his son, Jesus Christ. He is the surety of a better testament. And by what means did that testament come into force, according to Hebrews 9? By means of death. The Lord Jesus Christ died for us because that was the payment that was necessary. For the wages of sin is death. I sinned. 
I had wages to collect or to pay, however you want to look at it, and it was death, threefold death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our surety. So we come to his table.